0: Hello and welcome to the Human Body Fundamentals Podcast. I'm your host, Caroline Stoll. Each week, I speak with experts to learn the ins and outs of the human body. This podcast aims to bring forth informative conversations about why it is important to know the function of specific body parts, systems, and rhythms. We will also be covering common disorders and problematic conditions, as well as restorative treatments and procedures. I'm so glad you're here. Now let's get started. Everybody, thank you for tuning in. This episode, we're going to be covering the anatomy and function of the esophagus, along with a few different problems that can occur within this region, specifically acid reflux. I'm interviewing a man by the name of Dr. William Conway. He is a gastroenterologist, also known as a GI, or gastrointestinal doctor based out of the Santa Barbara Cottage Hospital. Occupationally, he's a surgical oncologist, meaning he treats and performs surgery on patients who have cancer in the GI tract. I actually met him about a year and a half ago because he was the doctor who treated and healed my grandmother of pancreatic cancer. And um, the reason I met him was because the Santa Barbara News Press wanted to do a section cover story on Dr. Conway um, featuring my grandma because they wanted to let everybody know that they didn't have to drive up to Stanford or drive down to UCLA to find a great GI doctor because we have one right here in Santa Barbara. And by the way, my family visited UCLA LA hospitals and Stanford uh, to find the right fit but Dr. Conway was the one and quick side note I wasn't recording when the doctor and I were greeting each other so please forgive me for the abrupt transition to the first interview question Okay, let's start off with the basic question about the esophagus. What is the esophagus and what is its function?
1: All right, the uh, esophagus is essentially a muscular tube uh, that functions as a a conduit uh, to get food from your mouth and the back of your throat down into the stomach. Um, There's no digestion that really happens in the esophagus. It's really just a passageway. Uh, the food that you chew is sort of pushed back into your pharynx area, the back of the throat, and then ultimately pushed through sort of a coordinated function of the muscles of the tongue and the mouth into the esophagus uh, where uh, the food is then pushed down into the stomach. The esophagus uh, does what's called peristalsis, just like the rest of your bowels, Um, and it's a coordinated series of contractions that sort of start proximally up near the mouth and then sequentially squeeze farther and farther down towards the stomach to create a forward push and move the the food all the way down into the stomach. It's about um, 25 centimeters long, um, which is about a foot long. Uh, It starts about 15 centimeters from your teeth. So it's relatively short um, and fairly close to to the opening of the mouth.
0: All right. And so where would you say that the esophagus begins and ends? Maybe it begins right below your chin and it ends above the stomach.
1: Yeah, you can um, imagine it basically above kind of the little notch in the uh, breastbone that you feel right just inside the clavicles. It starts just a little bit above there. Uh, And then the ending point is essentially where it inserts into the stomach at the gastroesophageal junction, we call it, which is um, the little pointy bone at the bottom of your breastbone, the xiphoid, we call it. It's directly behind there.
0: Will you please dive a little bit more into the details of its anatomical structure so we're sort of zooming in on it
1: yeah the um like we talked about it's a muscular tube and it has sort of different segments it it goes through three different areas of the body so it starts in the neck and then it goes through the chest and then finally there's a short segment that is actually in the abdomen uh, just a couple centimeters between the diaphragm and where it connects with the stomach uh, at the very upper part, there's a muscle called the cracopharyngeus, cracopharyngeus that essentially acts as a sphincter to the esophagus. And sometimes we call it the upper esophageal sphincter. Um, and then a little bit lower down, there, the way that the muscle fibers interact with the fibers of the stomach, there's another area of narrowing that we call the lower esophageal sphincter. Um, essentially it's straight down there are a couple of curves in the esophagus where it moves either a little bit right or a little bit left uh, as it relates to different structures in the middle of the chest like the heart and the aorta but essentially it's a straight shot down it's in the very back of the chest right next to the spine it runs right along the uh, the vertebral bodies of the spine Uh, it's a muscular tube it has uh, smooth muscle fibers and also skeletal muscle Um, and, and really, like I said, it's designed uh, as a, a way to propel a uh, bolus of food down into the stomach.
0: Okay, thank you for describing that. Uh, Just to reiterate what you said, we have the upper esophageal sphincter or narrowing. We have a lower esophageal sphincter, which connects uh, the esophagus to the stomach. And then we have some sort of like skeletal muscle and other muscles that contract the food down to the stomach.
1: Yeah, I didn't mention the lining. The lining is um, what we call a squamous epithelium. Um, and it's 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 basically a lining that allows the food to slip by quickly without any significant friction Uh, There is mucus on it, which also makes it easier And then also it's sort of the food is sort of lubricated by the saliva that you create in your mouth that you swallow with the food Uh, but the lining is very very smooth and just allows a transit of food easily
0: Okay, let's go over the upper esophageal sphincter. Will you go over what it looks like, sort of what it is made out of and um, what its function is?
1: Sure. Uh, it's a, uh, essentially a, a circle of muscles. Um, it's kind of at the junction between the pharynx, which is kind of the common area in the back of your throat where air would go through for breathing and also food would be as you're eating. Um, and the esophagus down below. That's kind of the transition zone. Um, It's closed uh, when you're not eating, uh, and then when you initiate the action of swallowing, uh, signals are sent to it to relax and open. At the same time, there's a structure called the epiglottis, which when you swallow uh, will cover the larynx uh, or the voice box where the vocal cords are, uh, that are the uh, most upper part of kind of the the windpipe or the trachea, and so the epiclottis folds over that area so that the food doesn't go um, sort of in the wrong place, and the upper esophageal sphincter will open and allow food to pass down into the esophagus, uh, but essentially the upper sphincter is is uh, a circle of muscle,
0: okay, well, now that we know that the sphincter is a uh kind of a tight, narrowing muscle that allows for the opening and closing of the tube. What is the function of the lower esophageal sphincter?
1: The lower esophageal sphincter isn't as much of a true sphincter uh, as the cricopharyngeus muscle or the upper sphincter. Um, it's more of a narrowing uh, that is created by the meshing of the muscles of the esophagus with the muscles of the stomach. And also there's um, uh, a bit of an acute angle where the esophagus empties into the stomach. And that also creates a sphincter-like mechanism which prevents or attempts to prevent the movement of food from the stomach back up into the esophagus.
0: So now I'm thinking of food, and when it passes through the esophageal tube, it's, and it's now in the stomach... What happens to that food?
1: Um, as, you, as you swallow food down in the esophagus, there really isn't any digestion that happens. Uh, and the digestion first starts down in the stomach. So the food goes through the lower esophageal sphincter um, and then into the stomach. And as you eat, your body sends signals to the stomach to start producing acid. So when you don't eat, you don't make as much acid from the cells that line the stomach. But as you put food in your mouth and you start to chew, those cells get signals, both hormonal and from nerves, to tell them to start making acid. And so the acid mixing with the food is sort of the first point of digestion. Um, We call this uh, food chyme, uh, which is basically partially digested food, as well as the acid secretions from the stomach.
0: Chyme, C-H-Y-M-E. Correct. And backtracking a little bit, the lower esophageal sphincter also prevents the chyme from moving back up to the esophagus.
1: The lower sphincter is important in that because as we'll talk a little bit about later, the chyme or the partially digested food and the acid secretions of the stomach can actually injure the esophagus and cause some other symptoms that we'll talk about. Uh, And so that that lower sphincter is incredibly important. Part of the reason that it works is that a portion of the esophagus is in the abdomen. So the first two centimeters should be in the abdomen. Um, I'm sorry, the, the final two centimeters of the esophagus should be down in the abdomen. There are certain things like hiatal hernias and, and other anatomical issues where the lower end of the esophagus is actually still in the chest. But in the normal anatomy, it's in the stomach. And what that does is the pressure in the abdomen is higher than the pressure in the chest cavity. And so that allows a sort of a pushing on that final couple centimeters of esophagus to keep it closed and help prevent that reflux.
0: And when the chyme does move into the esophagus, this is called acid reflux. Will you please go into a little bit more detail on acid reflux?
1: Sure. Essentially, it's uh, as it as it sounds. It's acid refluxing in the wrong direction. Um, the uh, you don't really make acidic fluid. Uh, anywhere outside of the stomach. And so the stomach is very specialized to be able to tolerate an acidic environment. It's The stomach is essentially a large uh, sort of bag that can hold a lot of fluid and food. So you can eat a big meal. You can, you know, eat a whole pizza if you want. And the stomach will distend. Um, the problem, though, is when it distends so much that the fluid can sort of overcome the mechanisms to prevent the movement back up into the esophagus. As it moves forward down into the small intestine, it's okay because pancreatic fluid is released that neutralizes the acid. The esophagus can't do that. So if the food or the acidic fluid goes in the wrong direction, we call that acid reflux, and it can damage the lining of the esophagus.
0: And this lining that you were talking about earlier uh, is called the stratified squamous epithelium.
1: That's correct. That's the normal lining is is called a squamous epithelium.
0: Let's talk about the problems that can occur when we have acid reflux. Can it cause diseases or, or big problems? Like how serious is acid reflux?
1: Yeah, it can be a huge problem. Um... There are some symptoms that we'll get into in a minute, but sort of overall, uh, you can have damage to the lining of the esophagus, uh, which can not only cause pain or other symptoms, um, but the damage can actually even lead to cancer. The, uh, when cells in your body are injured repeatedly, that's the problem. You can have, you can have reflux occasionally And your body is very well designed to be able to deal with that and not have it be an issue. But anytime you have chronic injury in your body, the cells will start to change. And that's a process we call metaplasia, where they'll try to change into a cell type that can actually handle the the repeated injury. And that can happen in the esophagus if it's repeatedly injured by acid reflux. And that metaplasia can sometimes have, um, make mistakes. And so the metaplasia is the actual changing of the cellular DNA. And if you get mistakes in that, then you can actually uh, lead to uh, cancers.
0: Okay, so metaplasia is the changing of the damaged cells into a different type of cells to compensate for the changes? Exactly.
1: So the, we, call it, we sometimes call it intestinal metaplasia because the cells are trying to change into cells that are similar to the lining in the other parts of the GI tract. And those are the types of cells like the lining of the stomach. So the stomach is very capable of handling acid in an acid environment. And so the esophagus is essentially trying to change into a lining more similar to the stomach lining.
0: You mentioned that there are some diseases that can occur or are caused by acid reflux. Will you please name a few?
1: So overall, we sort of call acid reflux GERD or gastroesophageal reflux disease. Um, and that's when it's a more severe kind of chronic issue. Uh, everybody has some heartburn and reflux at times. Um, so that's not too terribly abnormal. Um, but when it's common uh, every day or most every day, uh, then then it sort of moves into this category we call GERD. Uh, again, gastroesophageal reflux disease. It's really quite common Uh, in the U.S. affecting over 40 million people a year. Wow. Um, It's related to... uh, The reason that it happens is, like we talked a little bit about, the lower esophageal sphincter doesn't work either because of anatomic issues like a hiatal hernia, but probably more important is lifestyle uh, issues that we'll talk about a little bit more. And... As this progresses, it may start out as just some sort of symptoms that you feel, but as it progresses, you can get this change in the lining like we've talked about, and that we actually call Barrett's esophagus, named after the physician that first described it. And Barrett's esophagus is when you actually get that intestinal metaplasia. And when you look endoscopically into the esophagus, you can actually see the changes. The squamous epithelium is is sort of whitish, And when you look in someone who has chronic reflux disease and has developed Barrett's changes, you'll actually see small segments of the end of the esophagus where the lining has turned pinkish, which is more like what the lining of the stomach looks like.
0: Okay, so the color changes, and there is also a thicker, bumpier, very different lining.
1: Yeah, and the GI doctors will do biopsies of this area, and you can actually see the changes under the microscope to where it's become more of a, a stomach type lining. Uh, It is thicker. Uh, Sometimes most of the lower esophagus can change. A lot of times we see these little strips of change, Um, but it can be quite extensive.
0: What are the symptoms of GERD, which again is a common and more severe form of acid reflux?
1: Uh, So there's sort of classic symptoms and then kind of Less classic symptoms, the classic symptoms are going to be basically heartburn, uh feeling of regurgitation of food or sour liquids uh, that feel like it's sort of coming back up and in the esophagus, when you have pretty much any issue with the esophagus, regardless of the location, you often will get symptoms like it's in like it's in in your neck, mm. even if it's happening down lower, so you'll feel as though food or sour liquid is sort of coming back up into your neck area, Um, and certainly heartburn is a very common one. Sometimes people get what's called water brash, which is where they start to make a lot of saliva because their body is trying to create something that they can swallow again and push things back out of the esophagus, so people will get that where suddenly they'll feel heartburn and then their mouth will fill with, with saliva. The other sort of non-class, less sort of classic, but clearly related things are, can be things like coughing or breathing issues. And that's where you're actually getting the reflux so bad that you're getting fluid come back up into the pharynx or the back of the throat. And it's stimulating a cough reflex uh, as your body tries to prevent any fluid from going down into the airway. Uh, So those people can get asthma from reflux, Sometimes folks will actually initially present that way and they'll see, you know, a, a head and neck physician or something like that, not realizing that really it's an issue related to their GI tract uh, that's causing the breathing difficulties or the coughing.
0: Wow. So, how does this relate to the infamous Barrett's disease or Barrett's esophagus?
1: So, like we talked a little bit about, the chronic injury to the lining of the esophagus will stimulate the cells to change. And that is a disease process we call Barrett's esophagus. The problem with these changes, like we talked about, is that you can increase the risk of this changing into a cancer. Mm. It takes some time, but these processes can happen. And likely is the reason why we've seen a pretty dramatic increase in the number of patients with esophageal cancer related to reflux over the past two or three decades. The um, the folks that do endoscopy, the GI doctors, have done a lot of research in this area and done a lot of biopsies and things. And you can see these changes under the microscope. And if someone has this, then they certainly need Uh, to watch this very closely. There's different sort of severities of the Barrett's changes, and you can actually have a Barrett's change that doesn't have any cancerous changes. You can have Barrett's that almost looks like cancer, and there's sort of an in-between. We call that low-grade dysplasia and high-grade dysplasia. Dysplasia is different from metaplasia in that it's actually moving into a cancerous type state. Metaplasia is just a switching of a cell type. But within those Barrett cells, you can start to see that dysplasia, which are early signs that the area is becoming cancerous.
0: All right. Thank you for explaining that. What are the treatments for Barrett's esophagus?
1: There's a couple different treatments. There's non-medical treatments, which are essentially kind of lifestyle modification things, and then there are medical treatments. The lifestyle-type modifications would include um, eating smaller meals, uh, eating things that don't stimulate as much acid. Um, The other thing sometimes people do is eat right before they go to bed. So that's a bad idea, you should try to stay upright for at least a couple hours after you eat. Um, Sometimes people have reflux because their lower esophageal sphincter just doesn't work very well, even when they haven't eaten. And those folks sometimes will try to raise the head of their bed up a bit, so they sort of sleep on an incline, uh, just to use gravity to keep the fluid down into the stomach. We do think that smoking likely will stimulate some of this, so stopping smoking is always a good idea. Um, The other thing that really stimulates reflux is obesity, and especially abdominal obesity. And especially men tend to carry their weight in their stomach, they get a lot of extra fat around their bowels, in the back of the abdomen. And it just creates pressure within the abdomen. And that higher pressure in the abdomen sort of tries to push things back up into the esophagus. Uh, So those would be sort of the lifestyle things that that folks can work on. If those don't work, then you would move into medications. And you would move into medications sooner if you had the barrett's changes already if you have somebody who just has occasional heartburn then you know you'd always start with lifestyle modifications but if if somebody the first time they go to see a physician they already have barrett's changes then you would probably immediately go to some sort of medication and what those do they don't actually stop the reflux but they alter what refluxes so they the most common thing is some sort of antacid medication And so that neutralizes the acid that's in that fluid that would go up and potentially damage the esophagus. These can be just things like Tums that just combine with the acid to create uh, a basic solution or something that actually reduces the amount of acid the stomach makes. Mm, Okay. So there's three things that stimulate acid production in the stomach. One is a nerve that sends a signal to the stomach from when you first start to eat. The second thing is a histamine pathway. And initially we had antihistamine drugs such as Tagamet or Zantac, which recently has been taken off the market. Uh, And we also have Pepsid and those will lower the amount of acid that's produced. The strongest type medication, though, is more recent, is a proton proton pump inhibitor drug. And the endpoint of the pathway that ultimately leads to acid production is what we call a proton pump. And that's stimulated. The third thing that causes acid to be produced is called gastrin, which is a hormone. And this drug, like omeprazole or Prilosec or Protonix, uh, these types of drugs will completely shut down acid production in the stomach because they affect the end producer of the mm. acid. Okay. And that would be something that we'd use for somebody who has more severe reflux-type disease. The other treatments, um, if that doesn't work, would be surgery. There are anti-reflux surgeries that we can do where we try to recreate a more... Effective lower esophageal sphincter. Uh, there's, these are called fundoplications. They're mostly done minimally invasively now, and the most common one that's done is called the Nissen fundoplication. You also can do what's called radiofrequency ablation of the lower esophagus, which essentially puts energy into the esophagus and um, can injure the muscle so that it narrows to prevent the reflux. The other way that radiofrequency ablation is used is to actually destroy the Barrett's tissue. And if you combine that with anti-reflux treatments, you can sometimes get the normal squamous epithelium to grow back in those areas.
0: How often do you treat patients with Barrett's disease?
1: Uh, You know, as a surgeon, I don't see folks as often in this stage of their reflux treatment, but Reflux is incredibly common. So gastroenterologists see patients with reflux disease routinely and make decisions about starting proton pump inhibitors or referring for surgery, um, doing their surveillance. If somebody has Barrett's disease, they need to have endoscopy probably once a year. If they have Barrett's disease with dysplastic changes where there's a worry that potentially this is changing into a cancer, then they're going to get endoscopic surveillance much more often, uh, sometimes even three to four times a year um, to be sure that you don't have progression to a cancer.
0: Okay, please forgive me, what is an uh, endoscopy? Uh,
1: a Essentially a tube with a camera on the end of it is inserted down into the esophagus so you can look at the entire length of the esophagus. You can also look at the stomach and the first part of the intestine called the duodenum. And that's what we use for surveillance of these folks that we think are higher risk for developing a cancer. Because like any cancer, esophageal cancer is much, you have a much higher chance of being cured if you catch it early.
0: Let's talk a little bit about the types of cancers that can be born um, out of these esophageal diseases.
1: Uh, Esophageal cancer has changed over the past two to three decades For a long time, it was primarily related to alcohol and tobacco use. And most of the time, it was actually a squamous cell cancer, meaning that it started from the original lining of the esophagus. And they tended to be a little bit higher up. They were sort of in the mid-esophagus, sometimes up in the portion of the esophagus we call the cervical esophagus, which is the part that's up in the neck. But over the past two decades, two to three decades, there's been a dramatic change to where the most common type is what we call an adenocarcinoma. And those are tumors that are similar to the lining, similar to tumors that start in the lining of other parts of the GI tract. So colon cancers are adenocarcinomas, small bowel cancers are adenocarcinomas. And now almost all the cancers we see are in the lower esophagus. And we think that it's all related to this process of reflux and GERD and Barrett's changes. And now it's it's somewhat uncommon to see folks with squamous cell carcinoma. We mostly just see patients with cancers of the lower esophagus, again, related to reflux and and the Barrett's changes.
0: Will you please briefly go over the symptoms of esophageal cancer?
1: Most of the time, it's going to be related to difficulty swallowing food. A lot of these folks are gonna have their symptoms of GERD with reflux symptoms and heartburn and things, but then there will be a change in the symptoms most of the time. And that's related to the lining of the esophagus starting to grow into a mass and starting to have difficulty functioning as a normal Uh, doing its normal process of moving food through into the stomach without difficulty. And it'll feel like things start getting stuck in the esophagus when they swallow. Most of the time it starts with meats or breads. Those are things that get stuck easily. But it can actually progress to where it's even difficult for patients to swallow liquids. These are kind of symptoms that are real. We call red flag symptoms where if somebody has a history of having reflux, and then they start to have trouble swallowing, uh, that's a real worry that you can be growing a mass in there that's blocking things.
0: All right, so you've discussed and really elaborated on GERD, which is a more severe form of acid reflux, but is very common. It affects about 40 million Americans per year. Um, Barrett's esophagus, which is the change in the lining of the esophagus due to acid reflux and esophageal cancer. Um, and I, I just think it's safe to say that acid reflux is the main culprit here. So I'd love to circle back to acid reflux and see if we missed any points on prevention or any like general reason to stay more aware of, um, of that consequence, you know, later in life.
1: Yeah, I think that one thing that we don't really focus on enough in US healthcare and I don't want to get in too much of an editorial here, but uh we don't really work on prevention as much. And esophageal cancer clearly is one that you can work on prevention. Um and you can you can do lifestyle modifications that can significantly reduce your risk of getting esophageal cancer. Um, And the behaviors that lead to reflux, like we talked a little bit about before, are eating large volumes, eating right before you lay down to go to bed, uh, eating a lot of sugar and unhealthy foods, fried foods, very fatty foods. All of these things will promote reflux. Uh, Obesity especially promotes reflux, Um, and I think it's incredibly important that maintaining a healthy lifestyle in terms of your eating, not only because it will affect your risk of diabetes and hypertension and things, but it really can modify someone's risk of getting esophageal cancer.
0: All right, so I have one last question for you. As a surgical oncologist, I am assuming that you don't spend the majority of your time incorporating integrative or functional medicine in your practice too much. Um, but I would still love to hear your thoughts on it, anyway. Of course, it, uh, specifically directed towards your GI practice.
1: Yeah, I think that um, I think we don't really know, uh, and I think part of the problem is that we haven't. Studied it the way we have other areas uh, I think it's pretty clear that an integrative approach to medicine uh, needs to be uh, highlighted more, and we try to do that more and more in oncology so we can't we need to get away from treating folks just specifically on their uh, tumor or their specific you know hypertension or or whatever this this diagnosis is and we need to look at other uh, parts of their situation and in what I do it's so important to address things like anxiety and depression. Um, it's so important to uh, get a social worker involved if they don't have the appropriate support uh, at home to make sure they can stay positive and, and even just get the food they need sometimes. So I think that we Essentially, I think, I don't know yet, but I think there is there is something to these other areas that we've sort of classically ignored in Western medicine. And we are trying to move into that. At the Cancer Center now, we do have uh, a integrative medicine program. Um, we're looking at things like acupuncture and some other areas uh, for symptom management. Uh, and I think it does work. Um, uh, people especially in California use marijuana and CBD for symptom management I think it works um, I think these are things that we've sort of traditionally shunned uh, but uh, it's important that that we recognize and try to learn more about them um, and I think taking a holistic approach to the patient is is so much so important and there's even some data where uh, I remember reading a paper about um, it was in kidney cancer patients and they actually lived longer if they had better social support uh, symptoms, systems. So people who were sort of alone and didn't have you know, a supportive spouse or family uh, just didn't live as long with their cancer as those who did, even though they were the same stage, uh, perhaps same fitness starting out. Uh, so I think that we we have to look at Kind of the non-traditional things more and more and make sure that we're addressing all of those issues
0: okay what a great interview thank you dr conway for joining me here on human body fundamentals uh, i could not have asked for a better guest uh, to talk about the esophagus with
1: you're welcome happy to be part of it
0: all right i hope everybody enjoyed this interview Uh, dr conway is very kind very friendly uh, and more notably a highly skilled and experienced surgical oncologist for your gi tract Uh, definitely keep dr william conway on your radar again he's at the santa barbara cottage hospital thanks so much for tuning in and i hope to see you back next time